Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You may be seated. This is the reading of God's Word. I was going to try to cover more verses than that, but as I began to study, <laughs> that's as far as we're going to get tonight in 1 John. You know, it's a, it's a really bad place to be in the place of uncertainty, to be in the place of the unknown, not knowing. Maybe it's someone that has gone missing, maybe a child, maybe a loved one. I know uh, growing up, my grandfather had Alzheimer's, and as he was in his 70s, one day he just went missing, <laughs> Uh, and his truck keys were gone, and his truck was gone, and uh, for days we didn't know where he was at. We didn't know, you know, if he had died, if he had wandered off somewhere. Uh, they actually found him over in Tallahassee, Florida, which is about two and a half hours from where we grew up, and he was in the middle of a pond at night, waist deep, looking for his dog. And uh, just the uncertainty of, you know, where was he and where was he at? And if you had to stay in that place for a long time as people... It's really debilitating to stay in a place that is just the unknown. You know, it's almost better to know, hey, I'm really sick or I'm not sick. But to stay in that place of limbo is, is a hard place to be. And so even during this pandemic, even during this time in our own culture, that's one of the things that makes this time very, very hard is everybody's trying to figure out, you know, is this thing going to be over? Is it as bad as they say it is? Is it worse? And so we're sort of in this place of uncertainty. We're sort of looking around trying to find the foundation that we can find our footing on. And unfortunately for many in our culture, we're asking the question, you know, is there any global certainty, right? Is there any certainty in the world that we can rest in? For some reason, we tend to flourish when things are stable, when things are solid. Even kids, if they're in solid or stable homes, they tend to flourish. They tend to do better but when we're in places that are volatile or places that are shifting, it's almost like dealing with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, trying to live in a house where you're not really sure which way is the right way or which line to walk, and you're sort of always walking in angst and anxiety. And so what has happened here in the book of 1 John, and Ben probably talked about this some last week, is what John is having to deal with is there's been a group come in, the Gnostics, and they have sort of caused the church that John is writing to sort of to lose their footing a little bit. They've come in, as you guys know, the Gnostics, they confessed and believed that they had this special inroad to God. They had this special knowledge, a gnosis of God, this special experience with God that no one else had. And so it was throwing God's people into confusion because they were asking you know, if the Gnostics have this secret knowledge, if they have this secret inroad, how can we discern, how can we know, how can we decipher what's true and what's not true? How can we know who the true people of God are? And even more troubling, they were asking, 
how can we know that we are the people of God? How can we know that we're in right standing with God? How can we know that we have a true knowledge and understanding of the living God? And so that's what John is doing. He's, he's here, and he's trying to convince these that he's writing to, no, you haven't been deceived. Yes, you are on God's team. You are a part of the body of Christ. And so John, like any good pastor, he's wanting to reassure God's people of who they are. John wants to root them and ground them in the soil of the gospel. Now remember, John's probably in his 80s. Some, many would say that he ended up dying when he was in his 90s. But John has rooted himself in the foundation of who God is in the gospel. And he's been able to walk with God for 80 or 90 years. So he knows where his foundation is. And he's wanting to help these people. He's wanting to help these other believers Find that foundation. He's wanting to help them understand, hey, listen, this is where you want to root yourself. So as I said last time that I was preaching, this is not a letter of new faith. This is not John trying to convince unbelievers that they need Christ. This is rather John trying to help people understand that you have a genuine faith if these things are true. There's two things that John uses in, this, in, the, in the book of 1 John to help people gain their assurance. And I want to sort of talk about them. One is sort of this mountain of doctrinal truth that he uses. That we can know that we're God's people if we believe in the historical Jesus. If we believe in the Jesus who is incarnated in the flesh. We believe in this God who is purely light. And this Jesus who is our advocate that Ben talked about last night. I mean, last week, and that he's a propitiation for our sin, that Jesus is the righteous one. So John has this massive mountain of doctrinal truth that he says, this is what true believers believe about God. But he also has a second mountain, and that second mountain is sort of the moral test that if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge that we're sinners, if we obey God's word, if we follow the scriptures, if we set Christ as our example and follow his way and we don't walk in darkness, if we don't proclaim perfection, then we know Christ. And so John has these two massive mountains that he's laying out for God's people. One mountain is this doctrinal truths about God. This other is this moral test. And John is hoping through these two mountains, as you sort of come over those mountains, that you enter the valley of assurance. And John knows that you have to be grounded in both of these in order to experience a certainty and a confidence that you have come to know the Lord. So one of the neat things is the Gnostics were all about experience, right? And I feel like our culture has sort of swung that way uh, over the last, um, you know, 50 or so years that we put a lot of emphasis on experience, and you would think John would come in and be like, you know, let, let me shoot down this experience thing. But John's not afraid of the experience. In fact, John is probably one of the most mystical writers in the, in, the, in the New Testament with the book of Revelation. So he doesn't deny the experience, but what John does is he wants to root our experiences in these objective truths about who God is and what Christ has done for us. So he doesn't throw out our emotions. He doesn't throw out our feelings, our intuition. He just doesn't make those things the foundation. He makes Christ and his word the foundation. 
So if you want to experience the beauty, right, you want to experience the beauty of a flower or a rose or something like that, it has to be rooted in good soil. And so John knows that, and he wants God's people to experience God to the fullest, right? He doesn't want to let the Gnostics hijack our experience with God, and we do experience God through the Holy Spirit and through His Word, but John, again, wants us to make sure that we're experiencing God in the soil of the gospel. And so what he does here is he starts off in verse 7, and he starts off with this word, beloved. And the first thing that he wants these people to understand is they're loved by God. But he wants them to understand that, that God has set his affections on them. That God has accomplished something on their behalf. That God has paid for their sins. Paul wants to root us in Christ's love because he knows that's the only way that we can actually love others. Unless we believe and understand that we are loved by God, there's no way that we can actually love other people. Listen to Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. It says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, weakness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So John understands that unless we root ourselves in the gospel, unless we understand what Christ has accomplished for us, loving others will just be this fanciful emotion that has no root. And so John wants to root us in what Christ has done for us. And from the beginning, there's been nothing else taught but this old commandment. One of the things that he wants to do is he wants us to understand that God's word, that God's law, that God's salvation is rooted in God's character and in his nature. Listen to what A.W. Pink says in The Attributes of God. It says, God's immutability is one of the most divine perfections, which is not sufficiently pondered. It is one of the excellencies of the Creator, which distinguishes Him from all of His creatures. God is perpetually the same, subject to no change in His being or attributes or determinations. Therefore, God is compared to a rock in Deuteronomy 32.4, which remains immovable when the entire ocean surrounding it continually fluctuates. Even so, though all creatures are subject to change, God is immutable because God has no beginning and no end. He can know no change. He is everlasting, the Father of lights, with whom is no variation, neither shadow of turning, says James chapter 1, verse 17. So there's no change with God. There's no change in His message. There's no change in His commands. There's no change in His expectations on His people. There's no change in His word. As Isaiah 54.10 says, For the mountains may depart, and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who is the compassionate one. So John wants the people of God to understand that, that first God loves them and has saved them, that they are his chosen, that they are his elect, And by nature of being God's people, and because God never changes, they are secure in who they are. 
they are secure. And so though these Gnostics have come along with this special experience, John says, listen, you are the people of God. You are the ones that are rooted in this God who never changes. One of the things I like is it says that, you know, there's no new commandment but an old commandment. And so if you look at this, if you go back and look at Deuteronomy 6.5 or you go back all the way to Leviticus, it's this same command to love God and to love people, to love God and to love your enemies. And in fact, 1 John 3, verse 11 and 12, it says this command goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. And that was the sin of Cain, right? That he did not love his brother well. And so John says, look, if it's new, <laughs> it's not true, right? If it's something new, and these Gnostics have come up with some new knowledge, and John is wanting to reassure God's people that this is not the truth of what it means to be the people of God. John is the apostle love. And in this particular book, loved or loved or beloved appears almost 50 times. And so John knows that it's critically important. If God's people are going to be about God's work, if God's people are going to be able to love those outside the church and love one another well, we have to be rooted in what God has done for us in Christ. One of the things that I appreciate about this first verse is you'll notice John says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new command. And then he says later on, the old command is the word that you have heard. Isn't it amazing that God gives us the Bible? That he gives us a book, right? Luther called it the external word. That God gives us the external word. He gives us this Bible. And we can go back and look in Deuteronomy. We can go back and look in Genesis and see that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so in, first, in Second Peter, it actually tells us that until the morning star rises in our heart and Jesus himself basically steps back into history, the Bible is the way that you experience Christ. In fact, the Holy Spirit, right, which is the way that we experience God is through the Holy Spirit, is the author of the Scriptures. And so John wants God's people to cherish the Scriptures. He wants us to understand that we experience the fullness of Christ, that we experience His presence, that we experience His promises, that we experience His securities as we know and read His Word and the Spirit cultivates those things in our heart. So I say to you today, church, love the book. Love God's Word. And certainly there are those who know God's Word inside and out and yet do not know the Lord. We know that. But you cannot know Jesus Christ and know Him rightly without knowing the book. Then John comes in in verse 8 and you almost ask, is John, is this like double talk here, right? He says there's no new command. There's this old command. It's rooted back in Genesis. We see it in the lives of Cain and Abel. And he says at the same time, there's this new commandment. So, so what, what's going on here? What, what is John doing? And what I want you to see here is in the Old Testament, we had these typologies oftentimes in the Old Testament, like Noah 
as, as his family entered into the ark, he was sort of a type of God's salvation. He was sort of a type of Savior in the fact that God put him in the ark and saved him from the flood. Then you have Moses, right, that was sort of a Savior. He went and led God's people out. He was also an intercessor, and we see that with the, the priesthood, right? As Aaron was the priest, he wasn't the ultimate priest. Jesus is the ultimate priest. We see it with the sacrifices, right? Ben talked about it last week, that you had the, the goats at the Day of Atonement. And they're sort of types of, of Christ. They're sort of pictures of what Jesus would ultimately do. And so there's nothing new here. There's nothing new as far as introduction. There's nothing new as far as meaning. But what I want you to hear is, I want you to, I want you to hear what John means. There's no new commandment. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-4. through 4. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purifications for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to the angels as the name that He inherited is more excellent than theirs. So since Jesus arrived on planet earth, we have had a more fuller picture of God's love. Since Jesus Christ incarnated in the flesh, we have a sharper focus of what it means to love one another. We have a clearer picture because of what He has done for us. So we have a fuller understanding because we have a fuller manifestation of God, a more clear manifestation of God in Christ. So it's like this. The sun is no more bright on a cloudy day than it is on a clear day, right? It's just on the clear day we're able to see it more fuller. And so with Christ, with Jesus incarnating in the flesh, we have a clearer, fuller view of who our God is. You see it also at Calvary, right? You can read in the Old Testament, you can read in Isaiah, you can read all the illustrations and the sufferings of Christ and what He did at us. But when you get to Calvary, when you're at the foot of the cross and Jesus is suffering and you're watching Him suffer, you have a clearer focus of God's holiness. You have a clearer focus of God's mercy. You have a clearer focus of God's grace and God's love and God's kindness as you sit there and you see Christ suffer on the cross. So John is not talking about introducing anything new. He's just saying since the arrival of Christ, since the arrival of God in the flesh, it is much clearer to us as God's people what it means that God loves us with an everlasting love. The verse goes on to say, that because the darkness is passing away and the light is already shining. Like, what does that mean? We know that since Christ came and He died and He raised from the dead, that the kingdom of God has been growing. And the kingdom of God was growing before Christ came, but it's growing in a whole new way because Christ has completely conquered death. He's completely conquered evil and darkness. And God says, actually, that the darkness is passing away. 
And the true light is becoming more and more fuller. Sometimes that's hard to see, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard to see that in a broken world. I bet Natalie's having a hard time seeing that right now. Right? Sometimes the clouds of despair get so big and so full and death just keeps swallowing up that sometimes it's, it's hard for us to see that Jesus has conquered death, that He's conquered evil, that he's, he's pushing back the darkness. It's like God entering into creation in Genesis and He begins to push back the darkness with creation. God says that's been happening since Christ and the resurrection in a new way that Jesus is conquering. Listen to Isaiah 60, 19-20. It's really good. It says, One day the sun shall be no more, and it will not be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be an everlasting light, and your days of mourning will be over. Isn't that good, church? Isn't that good when there's pandemic going on? Isn't that good when there's racial unrest going on? That one day there will be no more mourning. There will be no more darkness. The God of light will eradicate it all. And there will be peace upon the earth forever and ever and ever. That truth is the only thing that gets you through the death of a parent or the death of a child or the diagnosis that you've got stage 4 cancer. It is only a truth like this that says one day Jesus will eradicate it all and wipe away every tear. John knows that just like the people that he's writing to that we live in a a tough world, a hard world, and He wants us to know that we have the love of the Father. And it is a solid love. It's a secure love. And it has been purchased by Christ, His Son. Verse 9 says this, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. John is saying, whoever gives lip service, that I know Jesus, that I walk with Jesus, that I'm a follower of Jesus, and you don't love your brother. It's not talking about outsiders. We should love outsiders too. It's talking about loving the body of Christ. He says, if you don't love your brothers and sisters in the faith, you're still in the realm of Satan. Isn't that hard? you're still in the realm of darkness. Love must be present in an authentic Christian experience. Because in its absence, it's just a sign of a false profession. That's convicting, isn't it? That's especially convicting for God's church. When you think about the church splits that have happened across our world and country... And then you read this, you read this from 1 John, and whoever says he's in the light, and it's, it says hates his brother, it's really, 
It's really not a good translation. Hates is not really the translation there. It's more care and concern or dislike for your brother. Right? We can probably all skate by. Right? Even, we, we can sort of skate by. Well, I don't really hate anybody. I'm not like Hitler. But that's really not what... It's really concern for your brothers and sisters. Concern for their well-being. Concern that they're suffering. 19th century theologian Charles Hodge observe this. He says, it's, it often happens that men who are very pious, but they're not very good. Their religion expands itself in devotional feelings and in service, while the even, evil passions of their nature remain unsubdued. He says, it's selfishness sort of issuing itself in lovelessness, and it's masked in the claim that you dwell in the light. Isn't that sad? I I know that's why Christ, I know that's why Jesus says the world will know you by the love that you have for each other. You know, the church should be the the signpost of the new age. That's That's what the church should be, the signpost to the world that there's a new age, that there's a new realm of goodness and love and compassion and mercy that was accomplished by our Savior. I'm glad we have a merciful God. He's very merciful to us, His his people, His sheep. Even when we do fail to love each other well, right? Right? extends forgiveness and forgiveness and He wants us to forgive one another like that. He wants us to love one another like that. So funny, we get all these strategies. You know, one of the things I do is sort of the, the more outreaching. And we get all these strategies and Jesus says, look, if you'll just love one another as I've loved you, if you will actually love one another as I've loved you, the world will know that your message is authentic and others will come into the kingdom as we proclaim the good news of Christ. Verse 10, as we sort of move towards closing, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I think John wants to do two things. He wants to he wants to awaken those who are slumbering. He wants to awaken those that may be professing Christ, but they don't love Christ's church. They profess Christ, but there's this angst about others, and there's this hatred and this anger about others. And he's wanting to awaken them and say, "Hey, listen, you you may not be following Jesus, but." But John also wants people to know that we have a God who loves us and who has paid for our sin. And he wants us to be secure in Christ because of what Christ has done for us. But he wants that love to turn our hearts towards our brothers and sisters so that we love each other well. See, I think there's a warning for us as the church and I think there's a warning for the world 
And the warning for us as the church is we, we don't get to define, right? We don't get to define what's good and evil or what love is or what love is not, right? God has defined that for us in His nature and His character and on the cross. What we get to do is we get to proclaim that love to those around us. You see, oftentimes the world does it too. The world tries to define love for us, right? And love is not, it's not, it's not subjective here, right? I mean, it's very clear. God shows us what love is by coming and dying and incarnating with us. And Ben has said it so well over the last few weeks about if you're going to love well, you have to hate well, right? Because the reason God sent His Son is because He knew that sin would destroy those that He loved. And to truly love people is to want what's best for them. And so we as God's people have to root ourselves in the love of the Scripture so that we can love one another well. And you know what? When we don't love one another well, you know the good news? We have an advocate. We have an advocate at the right hand of the Father that says, Father, I know, I know Ryan didn't love Ashton well, but he's still mine. Would you convict him of his sin and cause humility in his heart so that he goes and asks for her forgiveness? Isn't that good of God? Isn't that so gracious of him that he's so, he's so patient with us? And you would think God is so patient with us that we'd be patient with one another. And oftentimes, I'm just not seeing Jesus like I ought to. That's the reason I'm impatient with my kids or my wife. So let's be careful, church. Let's hold your pastors accountable, right? That we hold to the Scriptures. That we hold to the love of the Scriptures. Isaiah gives us a stern warning. It says this, Isaiah 5.20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So God has shown us what it is to love each other, right? He's shown it clearly to His church. Let's love one another. Not in word, but in word and deed. In mercy and grace. In forgiveness and patience. In kindness and long-suffering. There's nothing that joys my heart more than when my children play together in harmony. There's nothing more pleasing to a parent and more warming to my heart than to see my kids enjoy each other. You know that's the way it is with God. That we, as His church, small as we may be, would enjoy one another and people would see that and be drawn to our community. And we could show them our Savior and say it's all about Jesus. It's not about us, it's all about Him. Let's pray.